Hey Lainey, so we potentially have a new sponsor for our upcoming episodes and it's called Magic Mind. So anyway, what it is, is it's a little shot, a drink that gives you more energy, it helps you relax and keeps you focused and just makes you happy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So actually I've already tried it uh, for two days in a row and I will be honest with you, it did give me more focus in preparing for this next episode and it doesn't taste bad and, and I, you know I'm very picky so mm-hmm. if I was able to get it you know <laughs> take it and it's green um it really wasn't bad at all and um I wanted you and I love the bottle by the way it has waves and it seems very beachy to me and it made me you know just feel relaxed so I wanted you to try it today and see what you thought and then you can just give a little you know read about what the company is about Awesome. Well, thanks, Amelia. I'm excited to try this. I haven't tried it yet, um, like Amelia said, so I'm going to try it today um, as we're recording. But what I was really interested in is it came with a little pamphlet, which gives you lots of directions and recipes, too, um, to use it with other things if you like to take it in many different fashions. But it gave a little background story as to why the owner created this product. And I thought it was really compelling because it really spoke to me and and how it might be effective in helping us in staying alert and happy and stress-free during our day. Um, So it says the CEO was actually running a company and was rushed to the ER um, and diagnosed with a heart condition. And that the doctor said that there were two reasons that he was in the ER that day and it was from too much stress and too much caffeine. And that those two things are related. And his doctor shared with him that the condition needed to limit the caffeine intake to half a cup of coffee per day. And that he suggested green tea, saying it has a compound that will extend the absorption of the caffeine over time and decrease stress while keeping you alert. I mean, that sounds wonderful. And it never occurred to him that adding an ingredient alongside caffeine would improve its effectiveness and decrease the downsides. And he's convinced now that's exactly what everybody needs in order to meet the challenges of the workday in this day and age. So after doing a ton of research um, with his scientific advisory team and medical doctors, he's excited to share this drink, Magic Mind, with us um, to really help us in achieving those health benefits on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so I am going to drink this now. Um, It includes matcha, to give us energy. It includes adaptogens to help us relax. It includes nootropics to keep us focused and it adds honey to make us happy. So here, I'm going to open it. It's cold too, by the way. And it's a little shot. It's probably two ounces. Yeah, it's exactly two fluid ounces. Oh, it's good. Yeah, it's not bad, right? I like it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, wow. Right? That tastes really good. It's also um, green, so it makes me feel a little healthy. And it only has 15 calories. So, um, wow, that's really good. Right? So, we'll see. And, and um, he, they said, you know, give yourself five days at okay. least to try it. Mm-hmm. And um, it comes in a pack, you know, a pack, I think it was 12 that came in the box. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, let's see. Um, See how it goes. Yeah, we'll do a follow-up. I actually had my caffeine this morning, so I'm having this along yeah. with my caffeine, and we'll see how we'll see how it goes, and we'll report back. Perfect. And we'll oh, also in this um, link, we'll, we'll link the um, 
We'll put the link to Magic Mind. Oh, so you guys can check it out for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you can click on it and see what you think as well. So we'll put the link in this episode. All right. Welcome to Murder at Land Between the Lakes, a podcast about the unsolved murders of teenage sisters Carla Atkins and Vicki Stout. A 40-year-old cold case that took place in Dover, Tennessee. This is the next chapter, a season of justice, and we are your hosts, Amelia Courtney and Lainey Sullivan. Welcome back, everyone, to Murder at Lamb Between the Lakes. Amelia and I are excited to bring to you guys a new case that we have been researching. Um, it's a case of a missing missing couple of people, Jennifer and Adriana Wicks. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to Amelia to, to start giving you guys the details. Yeah, like Lainey said, thank you all for sending in recommendations and stories that you think should be told um, in the Tennessee area. But today we're going to get away from Dover a little bit, and we'll be about 80 miles east of Dover in a little town called Cross Plains. has a population of less than 2,000 people. And again, it's another missing persons case, but this case was later classified as a homicide about a decade later. Um, the disappearance of Jennifer and Adriana Wicks was in March of 2004. The young mom and infant seemingly disappeared into thin air. At the time that they went missing, Jennifer was 21 and Adriana was only two. But let's start from the very beginning. In early 2003, Kathy Nail, the mother to Jennifer and two-year-old and two other daughters, Heather, who was 18 at the time, and Casey, only 15. Kathy and Casey moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. Heather was living with her grandmother that lived just down the road from their home. She wanted to stay and finish high school. Jennifer and Adriana lived with their their aunt, who was also who also lived on the interstate in the same area as the rest of the family. In July of 2003, Jennifer was introduced to Joey Benton by her cousin Jeffrey. Joey and Jeffrey worked together in Franklin, Kentucky. Now remember this because it will become very important later. Joey and Jennifer's relationship grew quickly and it wasn't long before Jennifer and Adriana had started spending many nights at Joey's house with his family in Springfield in the Owens Chapel community. This particular house consisted of his mom, Cindy, and dad, Joe. They had an outdoor garage. It was a garage type shed that had been designed as a bedroom. It had everything they needed except running water. And this is where the couple and the baby were staying while it was still warm. The Vinton family lived on a large property. It was more so known as a compound. A lot of his family lived on this compound in different houses. The grandparents, aunts, uncles, and extended family all lived somewhere on this 55-acre piece of property. So it wouldn't be long before things would start to take an ugly turn. By September of 2003, only two months after their relationship began, Kathy, Jennifer's mom, received a very upsetting and distressing call from Jennifer. Cindy Benton had driven Jennifer and the baby to her grandmother's house. Jennifer then explained what had happened. She said that she had never been so scared in her life, that Joey had pulled a gun and threatened to hurt himself, Jennifer, and Adriana. There was not a police report filed on this incident. This incident alone prompted Kathy and her daughter Casey to move back home from Nevada. Kathy wanted to be closer to her daughter and granddaughter. 
Jennifer and Adriana moved into the finished two-bedroom, one-bathroom basement apartment of her mother's home. It was a given that Joey was not allowed to enter their home. Unbeknownst to Kathy and Casey, Jennifer was indeed still seeing and talking to Joey whenever she could. On the 21st of December, Casey found Joey in the downstairs basement apartment moving Jennifer's stuff out. Kathy went down to confront them and try to talk her out of leaving. Kathy told Joey that that was no place for a baby to live with the guns and the drugs. It's not even a place for my daughter to live. Joey got right in Kathy's face and said, you don't have a daughter anymore, bitch. Ooh. When everyone got upstairs where the front door was, he walked out first with their things. Kathy and the two sisters shut the door and locked him out. During that time, they all three begged and pleaded with Jennifer not to go. Jennifer fought with Heather and Kathy. Things started to become physical, at very, at very heated at this point. So Casey took the baby and ran in the back bedroom because the baby was crying and so was Casey. She called 911 when she heard Joey bust through the front door. Jennifer and Adriana left with him to move back into the Benton family home. She and the baby lived in the barn. It was also referred to as the party barn by Joey and his friends. There were drugs and drinking present all while Adriana was there. After the incident in December, Jennifer stayed in contact with some family members, but not her mother or sisters. Jennifer and Adriana celebrated Christmas, New Year's, and Adriana's second birthday at the Benton home, and only her aunt was invited to the birthday party. By all accounts, Casey tells us that by the looks of the pictures, the two looked happy at those celebrations. In the early part of 2004, it became significantly colder during these winter months. Since the barn didn't have heat, Jennifer, Joey, and the baby all moved into the Benton home. This home was a small three-bedroom ranch-style home. Cindy and Joe had a room, Joey and Jennifer shared a room, and Adriana had her own room. Jennifer later began talking with her mom and reconciling after their argument in December. I believe their first encounter was at a McDonald's where Casey was working. Casey said in a Facebook blog that she regrets that she still felt anger toward her sister the day she saw her at McDonald's and didn't talk to her. She had no way of knowing she wouldn't have her own opportunity to reconcile. Joey still wasn't allowed inside Kathy's home, so he would drive Jennifer and Adriana to the house and would park on the side of the road and wait in the car while they visited. It's almost as though these were sanctioned visits, like controlled by Joey, right, Lainey? Yeah, that sounds very suspicious. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer's family from all sides had met with her to discuss the living conditions and the environment. It was so unsafe for both her and the baby to live in the home full of weapons and drugs. Jennifer had once told her mother that these things were all within arm's reach anywhere in the home at any time. One of Joey's friends testified in a police report that the Benton home was a storehouse for dozens and dozens of firearms. He said that it was all there near the time of their disappearance. All of the family members she spoke with urged her to move back in with her mother. So at this time, by March of 2004, Jennifer and her mother had completely reconciled and were talking almost, if not every other day, on the phone. Just as Kathy and Jennifer had started their relationship all over again, we now encountered the week of their disappearance. On Monday, March 22nd of 2004, Kathy received a call late in the evening. Jennifer was concerned that Adriana was sick. 
She was crying every time she tried to go pee and complained of it hurting. Her mom insisted that she take her to the emergency room. I am not sure if we have mentioned this yet or not, but Jennifer did not have her own phone, really not her own money or her own car. She was so solely reliable on the family or the Bentons to communicate and get around. Kathy said she was coming to get them to take them to the hospital, but Jennifer cautioned her not to come because the Bentons did not like her and did not want them at their home. So Jennifer asked the Bentons to take them. Cindy blew her off and said it was a diaper rash. I am sure you all thinking the same thing, diaper rash, UTI, or a result of leaving a diaper on too long, but put a pin in that. We will get back to that. Jennifer called her aunt to come get them and take them to the ER. They arrived around midnight. The hospital kept them all night running tests and it was determined that Adriana had an infection, not just any infection, an infection that is typically only seen in sexually active women. They left the hospital early and arrived back to the Benton home Tuesday morning. Jennifer then asked her grandmother, who is known as Granny Wicks, to come get them to go see the pediatrician for a follow-up immediately. The pediatrician agreed with the assessment at the ER, but also noted that it could possibly be from being in a wet diaper for too long. So following this appointment, Jennifer asked Kathy to meet her and Joey at Dollar General. Kathy had made a butt butter or salve, if you will, for Adriana's infection to alleviate the pain. Kathy could hear Joey and Jennifer arguing about her using up too many minutes on his phone. They were also arguing about all of his partying. When Kathy saw them, the baby clearly was not feeling well. This would be the last time anyone in Jennifer's family would ever see either of them again, ever. The Benton family showed no empathy toward the health of the baby. Come Wednesday, March 24th, Kathy receives a phone call from Jennifer, who is in her bedroom with raised voices in the background. Jennifer mentions that Cindy was making attacks on her parenting and character. Jennifer had said she thinks Cindy is jealous of Joey and Jennifer's relationship. On a side note, Jennifer had already mentioned some very questionable and odd behavior between Cindy and her adult son, Joey. For instance, after he would shower, she would dry him off. Yes, Lainey, you heard me right. At the current time, her adult son, she would dry him off after he showered. Now, back to the conversation with Kathy. She learned that Cindy threw out Jennifer and Adriana's food. She threw it out the kitchen door and said they better get to it before the dogs do. Cindy wasn't happy about Joey playing daddy to a baby that wasn't his. He shouldn't be doing fatherly duties for the baby. On this particular night that Adriana wasn't feeling well, Joey had decided it was time to sleep train her. So he would leave her in the crib to cry herself to sleep. Jennifer stayed in their bedroom while he stayed in the baby's room. Cindy made a really odd comment about Joey being alone in the room with the baby and said something about being compared to Michael Jackson. And that was, and that she was tired of hearing the fussing. This particular night, Daddy Joe got in Jennifer's face and was yelling at her as well. He had never gotten involved in any of the altercations before. Jennifer went to get the baby because her mother had told her that this was just not the night to start trying to sleep train her when she wasn't feeling well. Joey was passed out asleep and Adriana fell asleep on her shoulder the second she put her arms around her and Jennifer said to her mom on the phone, mom, she fell right to sleep. 
Kathy asks if she could come and get them and Jennifer assures her that she can handle it and will call her tomorrow. Unfortunately, that call would never come. On Thursday, March 25th, Jennifer and Adriana were at the Benton home. Joey was at work in Franklin, Kentucky, and remember, he was riding to and from work with Jennifer's cousin, Jeffrey. Unconfirmed by Jennifer's family, Cindy was at work in Sumner County, about an hour away. And Joe Benton's whereabouts this day are unconfirmed. On a topics forum, Joe mentioned he had an oncologist appointment. Something we may not have mentioned is that there was only one working car amongst all of them at the Benton home. Jennifer has two conversations this day with family members. She spoke with her father, Michael Wicks, for two hours around noon. Jennifer told him she was afraid of Cindy. Michael hears the TV playing in the background and then what seems to be a woman's voice saying something to her. Jennifer's reply to the woman was, I'm talking to my dad. Michael lived in Manchester, Tennessee, about two hours away. He told her to ask Granny Wicks or her mom to come get her. She says, no, that Joey is on his way home and that they're gonna go on a picnic. She then briefly spoke with her aunt. Her aunt was to leave a key for her in case they needed to come to her house, which was about two and a half miles into town on the main highway. So Jennifer had a backup plan in case things went sideways. Jennifer's cousin said that Joey walked up to him at work after taking a call and said, we have to go now. The foreman on the job told the family that Joey left early on Thursday, March 25th for a family matter. So they left abruptly and Jeffrey drove the 26 miles back to Springfield. Mighty, don't you just think that's weird that, that Jeffrey would just say, okay, and like clock out of a job, like during a work day and just leave and not ask questions? So it is definitely interesting if the foreman is losing two workers and they have a family emergency that they're going home to address. And Jeffrey is the cousin of Jennifer and he's driving Joey back home. Wouldn't he be asking what the family emergency is and how he would be able to help? You would think, right? I mean, he, he knows that his cousin is living with them. His cousin and his, and, and, Adriana is living with them, you would think he'd ask, you know, again, like you said, how can he help? What can I do? What's going on? But according to Joey, according to Jeffrey, he never asked. There was no convers there wasn't any conversation in the car on the drive home. But Casey told us that um, they do not know who called Joey or why he had to leave immediately, but clearly it wasn't for a picnic. Mm -hmm. It was more so for an emergency. But in a conversation between Joey and Kathy after the girl's disappearance, Joey told Kathy that when he arrived home that day, Jennifer and Adriana had themselves locked in their bedroom. He went on to say that they went for a drive to talk about things. When they drove back to the Benton home, Jennifer refused to go in. According to Joey, they had been fighting about her request to move back into the barn. There is a lot to unpack here, Lainey. If Cindy is at work an hour away, in their only working car, what car did they go in for their drive? Why wouldn't Jennifer go back in the house? Was she scared of someone? Why were they locked into the bedroom if everyone was supposedly gone? This is the part of the story where the girls vanish into thin air, or so it seems. But Joey has another story. It is important to note that this, that this is the next 
that this next part is Joey's story. So a lot of this is not factual. We'll let you know what is factual and what isn't. And not all the story can be factual anyway, considering his story changes like a hundred times in the police report alone. We will start with the first story, then we will go to the police report. His story is that after they argued in the car, they broke up. Jennifer requested he take her to the local grocery store, which I think was Food Value. I, I think that was the name of the grocery store in Cross Plains to make a phone call for her friend to pick them up. They left without any of their belongings, including the baby's car seat. He then took them on to the interstate Exxon gas, gas station. The police report shows that no witnesses at either location placed them there. At the Exxon, he drives across the street to a church parking lot to make sure her friend picks them up. And I put that in air quotes, mm -hmm. friend. He claims a white car pulls up and they get in the back. He leaves and his parents said he arrived home around 10 p.m. One of Casey's biggest questions is why would Jennifer call for someone to pick them up when they already had a plan to go to her aunt's house? They literally passed by her house to go to the Exxon. If they took the only other route, they passed right by her mother's house. So the next day, Friday, March 26th, Cindy was at work. Joe was in court for some unrelated reason, and Joey went to work in Franklin, Kentucky with Jeffrey. So fact, the last conversation anyone had with Jennifer was Thursday with her father and her aunt. It was odd that no one could reach her and they were starting to worry considering the conversations from the day prior. But remember, she doesn't have her own phone either. Fact, this time Joey asked another friend and his girlfriend, not the cousin, to take home from work. The job was finished early and they ended around noon. This friend and the girlfriend both attest that Joey was acting really strange on the ride home. The girlfriend went as far to say that she wanted him out of the car, that she was terrified. Okay, back to Joey's story. Jennifer supposedly shows back up on this day at his family's home in the same white car without the baby. She asked for income tax refund money. Since she didn't have a bank account, the money was being directly deposited into the Benton's bank account, and they were to give her the $500. He said his parents weren't there to give it to her. So she grabbed a few of her things, including the car seat. She says she'll come back the next day for the money. According to Joey, this would be the last known place Jennifer was seen and the last time anyone talked to her. That very night, Joey held a small gathering around a bonfire at the party barn. Jeffrey was there as well and asked where Jennifer was. Joey responded she was at a friend's house. Jennifer's aunt received a message from Joe on her answering machine that says he is looking for Jennifer to give her the tax money. Joe and Joey then showed up at the aunt's house to tell Joey's account of what happened the night before. So question, if Jennifer had said she was coming back the next day to get the money, why would the Bentons go to the aunt's house to give her the money and tell their story of the night before? Kathy began calling all of the Benton family members looking for Jennifer since that was the only way she was ever able to reach her, but no one would answer her. Then Heather, Kathy's middle daughter, got in touch with Joey and he tells Heather the story of what happened the night before. 
He said he thinks the friends could possibly be two people by the names of Jerry and Helga. Helga was one of Jennifer's friends. Kathy reached out to them and was able to speak with them on that Saturday morning. They said, if that's what he told you, something is very wrong. We haven't seen her. The police report also stated that Joey told Jeffrey he had dropped, dropped, he had dropped Jennifer off at Jerry and Helga's house around the Dixon Road area. It would also be that Saturday, March 27th, that Kathy reported Jennifer and Adriana missing to the Robertson County Sheriff's Department. The police arrive at the Benton home and Joey is the only one home. He tells the officer he can't come in without a warrant. The officer takes Joey's initial statement. You are all about to hear the discrepancies in Joey's statement. The officer leaves and notifies Kathy and the family members about his concerns and that he is getting the detectives involved. Okay, so in the police report, Joey stated that he had not seen Jennifer since Thursday when she left with a friend. Not Friday to get the tax refund, as he had said before. When the deputy asked who the friend was, he said he didn't know. Then guess what? Joey said he made a mistake, and it was him that took Jennifer and Adriana to Exxon around 9.30 Thursday night. The deputy then asked him which Exxon, and Joey said he didn't remember. The deputy continues to, I mean, how many Exxons can there be around there? I I, I don't know. (laughs) The deputy then asked him which Exxon, and Joey said he didn't remember. I'm sorry. The um, deputy continued to ask more questions concerning Jennifer and Adriana's whereabouts. Before he left, he asked again, when was the last time you saw Jennifer? Joey's response was Jennifer left his house in a white four-door Mustang and then stated it was no, it was a four-door Camaro. In the police report, the deputy noted that he took written statements from Kathy, her sister, it doesn't say which one, the aunt, the grandmother, and all stated that Joey would make threats that he would kill Jennifer and the baby and no one would find them. So at this point, a bolo was sent out and an official missing persons report was entered. So a few things that don't add up. One, four-door Mustangs are very rare and basically vintage. And the same goes for four-door Camaros, except they aren't vintage. They're more of an up-and-coming option. So from what we've heard, Joey was a car guy and he would have known this. So, yeah, Lainey, I went right to the source, my own expert, my dad. And he said that, no, there, there wouldn't have been four-door Mustangs or four-door Camaros at the time. And so that was a very unlikely scenario. And like you said, Joey would have known that as well. So it wouldn't have been until Monday, four days later, that police do a consented walkthrough of the Benton home looking for signs of a struggle or foul play. And they didn't find anything suspicious. According to the Gallatin News in 2013, nine years later, Bill Holt was elected Robertson County Sheriff, and one of his campaign promises was to bring justice to this cold case. It was nearly a decade after their disappearance, and the sheriff reclassified the case from missing persons to homicide and brought in the TBI. No one is certain what made the newly elected sheriff reclassify the case. He only stated new information had surfaced. The Benton property had been searched on four separate occasions. A pond on the land was even drained and searched. The same article quoted Sheriff Holt saying no one, including Joey Benton, 
has been eliminated as having potential involvement in the disappearance of Jennifer and Adriana Wicks. Jennifer's mom has worked relentlessly to find her missing daughter and granddaughter for nearly 18 years. Now, her daughter Casey has taken over to continue the search for justice. It was just recently that one of Joey's relatives reached out to Casey on social media and asked if they had interest in looking over the property again, that they had had some family disputes. So of course they said yes. They had not had any kind of relationship with the Bentons in, the, in all of the 18 years. They brought in at least 10 canine cadaver dogs with GPS trackers and their handlers. They covered 50 acres of land, remembering that this was not a police sanctioned search, but was authorized by a family member. And guess what, Lainey? They had some success. Mm. One of the cadaver canines hit on one area of the property. They, without a doubt, sniffed out human cadaver remains. If one hits, they bring in others to confirm, and three other canines confirmed. One master told them his dog had only ever trained on human remains, and that if his dog was alerted, that's exactly what it was. The next day, they brought in the two best dogs, and they alerted again in the same area. They called authorities to ask them what they should do, and they told them to dig. So that's what they did. They dug. But they didn't find anything. But with all of the rumors Casey has heard, nothing would surprise her. But a caution to our listeners, this is a bit graphic. She has heard everything from them being dissolved in acid, ground up, and fed to hogs. You name it. So what that can mean is that parts of remains or cremains could be there could be there or have been on that piece of property at some point in time. Whatever it means is that a de deceased person was there, whether it be Jennifer, Adriana, or someone else. It is important that we let you know that what they did find from the search is still being processed and they plan to continue searching the surrounding areas. So Casey and her family are fully aware that whatever they do find, it probably will not be good news, but it will hopefully give them some peace and possibly find the person or persons responsible for cutting the life of a young mom and her adorable little girl way too short. Until then, Casey will continue to be the voice for her sister and her niece. So if any of you listeners have any information on the disappearance of Jennifer and Adriana Wicks, please, please, please call the tip line at the Sheriff's Office of 615-382-6600. And I'll repeat that just so you have it. It's 615-382-6600. Also, stay tuned for our next episode where Amelia has the opportunity to interview Casey, Jennifer's sister, and get really the point of view from the family on the disappearance and the progress that's being made on the case. Thank you for listening to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. Music by Indy 44. Produced by Discrepancy Podcast. Hosted and edited by Lainey Sullivan and Amelia Courtney.